Well, in recent Sundays, we've been talking about our natural spiritual inability and God's gracious initiative. So our inability, God's initiative. Tonight, I'd like us to think about those themes some more by looking at a chapter that gives us several illustrations, several word pictures of what our sin is like and what God's salvation is like. Ezekiel 16. Would you turn there in your Bibles with me? Ezekiel 16. There in the major prophets, just after Psalms and that wisdom literature in the middle. Ezekiel 16 is perhaps the most graphic chapter in all the Bible. The language is shocking. Purposefully so. God intends for it to be shocking. How unable we are, how wicked our sin is, how persistent his grace and mercy is. Maybe you've heard this phrase before in a, mo- in a movie or in a doctor's office in real life. How bad is it, Doc? We've seen that in movies. Maybe you've said it before in a rather scary visit to a doctor's office. Maybe you've been with uh, an aging parent as they're hearing some bad news. And they say, how bad is it, Doc? The diagnosis has been, has been classified, but the prognosis has not yet been fully delivered. Well, in these recent weeks, like I said, we've been hearing about our natural state before God in the depth of our sickness, of our spiritual being before salvation. Imagine that you now say, how bad is it, Doc? Imagine saying to God, getting to ask God this question. How bad is it, God? Hopefully we get the diagnosis already, but do we really fully get the prognosis? Well, Ezekiel 16 is certainly one of God's answers to that question. How bad is it, God? It's one of his already given answers about how bad sin is and how deep our trouble is and yet how persistent his mercy and his grace and his salvation are. Ezekiel 16 is about the history of Israel and Judah and their sin during the time of the prophet Ezekiel. But it's also a window into the broader, broader realities of sin in general. In that sense, it applies to any age, including our own. In that sense, it applies and describes human, illability, human inability and, and God's initiating and persistent love. So get a Bible if you don't have one. Uh, get one of these Bibles here, uh, halfway down the aisles on the, on the wood platforms there, and turn to Ezekiel 16, because it's a long chapter, and though we won't read it all, we'll read a lot of it tonight in little bits and pieces. But we should all be looking down on our Bibles to see what God's Word says. In some ways, Ezekiel 16 is one big illustration. It's like a play, almost. But it has several acts to the play. Act 1. A deserted infant and a compassionate God. At the beginning here, we'll start in verse 3. A deserted infant and a compassionate God. That's Act 1. Verse 3 says, and this is God saying to Ezekiel, Say to the people, 
Thus says the Lord God of Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. This was literally true of the city of Jerusalem, but it hints also about the people's origin as well. I mean, remember Abraham, where did he come from? He was, he was with the Chaldeans in Ur, and he was one of them. And God pulled him from there. They come from, well, worldly stock. Verse 4. As for your birth, on the day when you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field. You were aboard on the day that you were born. So can you picture this? A newborn, still wet from his mother's womb, naked, on the side of a road, or in a field, alone, unpitied, doomed, unable, helpless, hopeless, and put in these shockingly stark descriptive terms. Of course, it isn't just Adam, it isn't just Israel and Judah that have this, this history. Adam and Eve, they went and hid after their sin, but God came calling, right? He initiated. Abraham was, again, this wealthy polytheist living in Chaldea when God came calling. And so Israel as a nation, time and time again, from its origin and all through its existence, it's little, it's often in trouble, it's often desperate, apart from God's intervention. So verse 6, God says, When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live! I said to you in your blood, Live! God steps in, unpitied, desperate, and doomed, like an infant on the side of the road, and God, in his power, merely speaks their their health into existence. Live, just like he spoke worlds into existence. Light, let there be. Just like in Ezekiel 34, dry bones, a field of them. And God tells Ezekiel, preach to the dry bones and tell them, live. And they stand one on top of another. Like Ephesians 2, that we were born dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. Complete intervention, totally his initiative. That's Act 1. Act 2. A ready bride and a doting husband. Verses 7 to 14 describe this. In verse 7, I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, ready to be married. 
I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness, and I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This, of course, is a frequent metaphor in Scripture of God's relationship with his people being like a husband and a bride. And hence, there's to be love and there's to be faithfulness. And God's people often were not faithful. And hence, this this picture comes up both in positive and negative ways in Scripture. Verse 9 says, I bathed you with water and I washed off your blood from you. I anointed you with oil. Verse 10, I clothed you with what? Verse 11, I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you. You see, God's doing this from beginning to end, isn't he? The splendor that I bestowed on you. I said, live. And then, when you were of age, I saw your nakedness, and I put clothes on you, and I set my love upon you, and I made you mine, and I didn't merely just clothe you with adequate clothing like a bathrobe, but I gave you the richest of garments. You're beautiful, and you are renowned among the nations. A ready bride and a doting husband. Act 3. A whoring wife and an angry husband. In verse 15, it turns a corner. And God says, but you trusted in your beauty. Those are sad words. You trusted in your beauty, the beauty that he gave. You trusted in your beauty. And even worse, you played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Of course, this is a spiritual description, right? It's an analogy. Verse 16 says, You took some of your garments, the ones I gave you, you made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them you played the whore. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you. What did you do with them? You made yourself images of men and with them played the whore. You took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them, before these men, these customers. You also took the bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey and you set before them for a pleasing aroma. Israel and Judah, in its history, frequently turned to other gods. And God frequently said that his spiritual adultery, it's prostituting yourself religiously. It's whoring around with other suitors. We're married. 
Verse 22, he says, In all your abominations and your whorings, you didn't remember the days of your youth. Remember, you trusted in your beauty. You forgot how you got that beauty. You didn't remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. They didn't remember. Verse 24, you built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. You set up sugar shacks in every major city. Look at the shocking language, these little phrases like in verse 26. You did it to provoke me to anger. Or verse 29, you were not satisfied with this one. And you still were not satisfied with that one. And even with this, you were not satisfied. So verse 30, the conclusion, how sick is your heart? These are the deeds of a brazen prostitute. And yet, God says, you were like no other prostitute. How so? Verse 31, the second half, look at that. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Verse 33, you see, men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings, so you were different. Most prostitutes get for what they do. You gave to do it. Brazen, persistent, willful, not duped, not snookered into it, willful. And this is the nature of sin. Oh, we would like to say sin is a mistake. We'd like to say sin is a shortcoming. We, we tripped. We messed up. It was unfortunate. It was an error. But God calls sin rebellion, and he likens it unto whoring. Whoring is a fitting analogy for sin, however distasteful you or I might think that it is. Act 4. Divine judgment of exposure and exile. Verse 35. You can see it turns a corner. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. And you just know judgment's coming. The judgment is going to be twofold. Exposure for your sins and exile. Verse 37. Behold, I will gather all your lovers and will uncover your nakedness to them. I'll expose to them what you are and what you've done and I will shame you. Now obviously this isn't how God thinks that Things should be handled here on a human level, humans to humans. This is an analogy for God's judgment upon sin. And the sin here isn't just the sin that is sexual. It is, even more importantly, the sin of idolatry. So God wants to expose it, but he also predicts and lets them know that this exile is going to happen, going to Babylon Verse 39, I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. 
sin is never nice. It always, it always comes home to roost. Eventually, we reap what we sow. Verse 40, they shall bring up a crowd against you. They shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords, and they shall burn your houses. God is righteous, and he hates sin. He's patient, but he's not patient forever. So here, there's exposure, there's exile, there's destruction of the land. And then there's Act 5. Act 5 is really a parenthetical comment from God. We could call it just simply like mother, like daughter. Because that's what he says in verse 44. Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you. Like mother, like daughter. What's he mean? Well, the second half of verse 45. Your mother was a Hittite. Your father was an Amorite. Your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. Now, God here isn't speaking in literal terms. Neither Israel nor Judah were formed by Hittites or Amorites. Uh, Samaria and Sodom weren't literally related to Israel. The point is simply that Judah is acting the same as all her neighbors. The siblings are siblings by vicinity, not by anything other than that. What God is saying is that Judah is a chip off the old block, just like her mother to the north, her father to the south, just like your sisters. And your sisters are famous for their sin. Sodom? You've heard of Sodom, right? It's a bad city. Samaria? It's a bad city. These cities are known for their sin and idolatry and wickedness. And God says you're just like them. In fact, he says you're worse than they are. Verse 47. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they were. Verse 51, Samaria has not committed half your sins. You've committed more abominations than they. You've made your sisters, Sodom and Samaria, appear righteous by all the abominations that you've committed. Act 6, God will restore the whole messed up family. Back to the flow of the narrative. Remember, Act 5 was a parenthetical comment, like mother, like daughter. Before that, God was promising judgment of exposure and exile and destruction of the city. And now he comes back to the flow of that narrative here in Act 6. God will restore. You see the promise of judgment, but you wonder, is that it? The answer is no. The judgment is violent and shameful, but it's temporary. God says, verse 53, I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your own fortunes in their midst. So God says to Judah, I will restore you. 
And not just you, but other unworthy nations too. The really bad ones too. And it will be a humbling thing, the the rest of the verses of this section go on to say, it'll be a humbling thing when you see that I'm able to restore them just as easily as I can restore you. It'll prove to you and to all the nations around you, to the whole world eventually, that I am a successfully saving God. That salvation is of the Lord. That's all pretty good, isn't it? That's good. But it gets even better. Act 7. A new or everlasting covenant that comes by way of atonement. A new everlasting covenant via atonement. Notice the second half of verse 59. You who have despised the oath, the oath made with God, they're married. You've despised the oath. You've broken the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Now that doesn't just mean it's a long covenant or an eternal covenant. When scripture in the Old Testament says an everlasting covenant, here in the prophets especially, it's referring to what it also says elsewhere is a new covenant. Listen to Jeremiah. In chapter 32 of Jeremiah, here he talks about an everlasting covenant. He says, they shall be my people. In this new covenant, this everlasting covenant, I will be their God. I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant and will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. I will keep them from their whorings. I will keep them from their many abominations. It's a new covenant. And that's what Jeremiah talked about a chapter before. In chapter 31, God says through Jeremiah, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That covenant made with Moses and the people of that time. That covenant, they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. Not on cold tablets of stone outside of them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sins no more. Not temporary judgment to try to correct a crooked ship but forgiveness, cancellation, remembering sins no more. Look again at Ezekiel 16 to see more about this new and everlasting covenant. In verse 62, God says, I will establish my covenant with you. And here you see the same language that we just read from Jeremiah, that you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 63, that you may remember Remember before, they did not remember where they came from and what God had done. 
that you may remember. And not just remember, that you may be confounded. Do you see that in verse 63? You'd be astounded at what he's done in his mercy and goodness and persistent grace. And that you'd never open your mouth again because of your shame. It's just a Hebrew idiom for talking about removing your shame. He'll remove your shame. When? When I atone for you. When I atone for all that you've done, declares the Lord God. He atones, he covers, he forgives. Later on in Ezekiel, this will come up again. God's promises are described like this in Ezekiel 36, verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of, uh, move the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that beats. I'll put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statues, and be careful to obey my rules." Christian, isn't this familiar language to us? This is our religion here, isn't it? This is our faith. This is our gospel. This is the new covenant. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the mediator of the what? The new covenant. It's in his blood. Hold that thought. We'll come back to that about Jesus being the mediator of the new covenant. But let me just throw in one more act. Not in Ezekiel 16. Act 8. You. You're part of the story, aren't you? Oh, in some ways we could say it's a different play or it's a, 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 the next play in the sequel of plays. It's, it's further down the line than just Act 8. But you get the point. It's the next chapter. We're part of the story if we're in Christ, if we're forgiven, if we're God's people. So how does Ezekiel 16 speak of our own experience? Well, our spiritual helplessness and hopelessness was something like a deserted infant on the side of a road. It was that bad. How bad is it, Doc? You don't have a chance. I mean, apart from a miracle, you don't have a chance. Your spiritual rebellion and mine is like a cheap whore to a faithful husband who just goes again and again and again and again, who takes his stuff and gives it to her other lovers. Sin is breathtakingly brazen. Sin is breathtakingly sinful and wicked. It's breathtakingly stupid and persistent. But God is breathtakingly compassionate. I saw you in your blood squirming. And I said, live. 
Our God is breathtakingly patient with our many whorings. Our God is breathtakingly persistent in his salvation. And he is absolutely resolute to restore and to atone and to keep no more shame, full atonement. Or, in the words of Peter, we're the elect. We've been foreknown by the eternal God, redeemed with his blood, set apart by the Spirit to obey the gospel. And it's according to his great mercy that he caused us to be born again. And born again to an inheritance that's protected in heaven. And we're kept by his power until the coming of Christ. We must remember all this. Remember, remember was an important part of Ezekiel 16. They did not remember the days when they were naked and bare, wallowing in their blood. After their redemption, God said, remember. And not just remember, but be confounded. Be amazed. Be astounded. Remember. And of course, as we remember, we also want to remember what he intends to do and what he what he gave us in the new covenant. He didn't just give us the forgiveness of sins, though that is so central to the new covenant and Jesus' death on our behalf. But he intends to restore us. So the new covenant means he's written his law on our hearts and he will be our God and we will be his people and he will put fear in our hearts to obey him and walk with him and worship him so that we will not go astray. So don't go astray and walk in his ways and strive to be a faithful wife to our pursuing, caring, and in the new covenant, our dying husband, Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is for remembrance. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Believing the gospel and the fight to keep believing the gospel is a fight to remember. Remember who we are, who we were, we should say. Remember what Jesus did and who we are now in him. The Lord's Supper is a symbol of God in his redeeming work through Jesus' life and Jesus' death on our behalf. The Lord's Supper and the bread and the wine is a symbol of our living hope. He lives that we too might live. This is a meal that's for those who know this forgiveness. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know that God has done this to you, He's come and grabbed you and made you his and forgiven you of his sin, your sins and, and written his law in your heart. Well, in a bit, we're going to partake of a, a meal together 
And we just ask you to stay where you are and stay seated while others get up and partake. If you're not a Christian, this meal isn't for you. It's a symbol of something that should be experienced in the heart and life of those who know it and love it. But sit where you are and pray, and we're glad you're here with us tonight. And we pray, even while you're here, that God does this saving work in your life. That even while you sit there, you will sense that he says, live. Christian, would you bow with me and let's ask for God's help to see our sin, to remember our nakedness, to remember those years when we were helpless, wallowing in our blood. Would you pray that God would help you to once again let you see and feel that you are needy and desperately so apart from his grace? But don't stop there. Once you sense your neediness, look to the cross. See a redeemer who died in your place, who said it is finished. It was raised in the third day. Trust and believe and know that he is your righteousness. Your righteousness is in heaven. It's unchanging. Trust and know that this is a amazingly persistent saving God.